0: learned anything from these past couple of years my fellow Americans is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in health care related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: Welcome everyone this is Dr. Harvey Risch Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we're continuing our weekly series with various accomplished and interesting people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but can go wherever our conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Reed Sheftel. Dr. Sheftel is an MIT educated surgeon who started... A foundation in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, for for the last twenty three years, he is b- performing burn reconstruction and cardiac ser- surgery on children of limited means. So, Reed, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately?
2: Uh, thank you very much for having me, Doctor Rish. Um, lately, I've been wondering about um, whether or not we should prosecute the evildoers. Let's call them um, from the COVID era, and. Um, have a lot to say about that. I even wrote a book about it called Heroes and Villains, the COVID-19 Book of Lists, which is a list of the people who were heroes in the story and um, lists of people who were villains. And there's about 175 lists in the book and a paragraph below each name explaining why they're listed there. Um, So I have thought about this for a long time. I'm actually in the middle of a revision right now, which will be out in about a month.
1: I don't know how you'll ever find an end to those lists.
2: Well, I probably won't. I'll have to update it every couple of years. I mean, the the, the revision's going to have 100 100 or 150 more names in it than the original did.
1: Yes. Um, you know, I've thought about finding justice in the in the name and memory of all the people who've been harmed from all of our policies and yeah. the I think that they're the leaders for sure require investigation and prosecution. Whereas I think that the there are lesser people who really don't have full responsibility on them, just like at Nuremberg, that it was basically the leaders of the Nazi regime that, that were pu- uh, punished. And that included doctors. That, in, that included doctors who were part of and supported the whole m- murder program that the Nazis carried out. So I think that w- wide ranging, but recognition that the leaders go first and then we need some kind of reconciliation for everything else. Just the way that um, when governments change and there's been violent you know, reversals in politics in third world countries, that they can't keep battling over that for forever because it just leads to cycles and cycles of violence and that it's not constructive. So at some point, after some reasonable evaluation of justice has been served, I think the rest should fall into the range uh, of reconciliation. Now, in the charged political atmosphere that we're in now, I don't know whether that's even accomplishable, but this is going to have to just kind of float in people's consciousness while we think about how to bring the the people who um, misrepresented and lied uh, about everything COVID, bring them to justice.
2: I agree. I think um, something has to be done, though. And the reason is this has been going on for close to 50 years, at least. In 1976, a very similar thing happened. And because no one was brought to justice over it, we've suffered with 50 years of pandemic after pandemic, abuse of the public after abuse of the public, including vaccines that didn't work and were very harmful. And if we don't start prosecuting some of these people, I think it's going to go on forever.
1: Well, I think you're right. There's, you know, the earlier ones were not as large scale as this. I mean, but we've all been pointing at at Fauci and what he did in 1987 when he was asked to support the use of bactrim and I forget the other antibiotic as as a combination pair for treating PCP pneumonia in the gay community and he wouldn't even espouse that people should try that, let alone approve anything. Meanwhile, he was flogging AZT, which was a horrendous drug, which was tremendously expensive, a huge profit margin, and was as as dangerous to use as what it was supposedly treating and required other medications to try to ameliorate its dangerousness. And so Fauci refused over between 1987 and 1989, the gay community of New York City raised enough money to carry out its own randomized control trial, showing that the medications work. By 1989, it was was known that they worked. Meanwhile, 17,000 gay people in New York City died unnecessarily from PCP pneumonia during that time because of Fauci. This was Fauci's trial run. For the 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 COVID pandemic, that you know, and but you're saying that this had happened before in other ways in in similarly, um, propagandized pandemics earlier.
2: Yes, exactly. The you're talking about pneumocystis carinii pneumonia that yes. was treatable with bactrim, right? Yes. And he used AZT instead. I see that as very analogous to using remdesivir in COVID. Don't you? Pushing yes. Yes.
1: But remdesivir is, is a basically a hospital infusion medication, not an outpatient medication, but Co- yes.
2: Correct. But I mean, he was pushing remdesivir when there were more benign and more effective medicines available.
1: That is correct. And in fact, he, I remember him vividly sitting on the couch in the Oval Office saying, we stopped this trial early, four days early, because letting it run to its completion would be just dotting the I's and crossing the T's and thereby divulging that he had violated the the protocol of running a a trial by stopping it early, which means he had looked at the data. They had already changed the endpoint because the endpoint that they were interested in as proposed wasn't showing any benefit. And the the endpoint that they actually used, which was days in hospital, is irrelevant. What people want to know is are they going to live or die? And that endpoint was not the one that he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming that it people stayed in the hospital a day less on remdesivir, and of course, you know uh, what difference does it make if you're dead? You know, I mean, the, the whole thing was a, a sham. It was a total violation of, of the protocol of carrying out a randomized trial, and he did this brazenly to the world on camera from the Oval Office.
2: Yeah, I agree. It was it was disgraceful, really. Um, you know, when you're talking about ending trials early it reminds me of another abhorrent thing that was done and that was um vaccinating the controls in all these trials oh and, that that
1: is a that's a trick from uh, vaccinology for the the last 50 years if not if not more that the, that everybody knows in the pharma industry you cover your tracks by doing that sure along with not having placebo controls and and so on
2: yeah i wrote that um They may say that they're trying to protect the patients by doing that, but actually they're trying to protect the manufacturers.
1: That's right. That's that's right. Controls. Yeah. That's right.
2: So this thing in 1976 is very, very interesting. Would you like me to um, go over it at all for the audience? Please. Okay. Um, Well, it happened in 1976, like I said, and it was January. And a substantial number of, of soldiers stationed at Fort Dix in New Jersey complained of a respiratory illness. So they took samples of everybody and sent them to a to the New Jersey public lab that serviced Fort Dix. And one of the soldiers, uh, David Lewis, Private David Lewis, it hit him particularly bad. He was sick and stayed in bed for five days uh, up until his company participated in a five-mile forced march, and he wanted to get out of bed to join his soldiers, and he did that. But during the march, he collapsed, and his sergeant applied mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and he did survive the march, but he died a couple days later. Um, Of note is that the sergeant never became ill after applying mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to uh, Private Lewis. The New Jersey lab identified most of the samples as ordinary strains of the flu going around that year, but they were not able to identify the strain in four of the soldiers and in Private Lewis. And so they sent those samples to the CDC and a few days later, uh, the sample came back, swine influenza A, H1N1. By this time, just a few days after the specimens were sent off, Uh, the other four soldiers had completely recovered without incident. And of course, without a vaccine, which will become important later. But in February, Dr. David Sensor, who was the head of the CDC, who was the director, distributed a memo calling for mass immunization of the swine flu. And a month later, President Ford officially endorsed the idea. So the manufacturers of the vaccine made two demands. Number one, that there must be a guaranteed profit for them. And number two, that the government provide the manufacturers with indemnity from liability for any adverse effects arising out of the as yet to be manufactured vaccine. So it was not Reagan. uh, Well, let's put it this way. They may have been testing to see if the government would agree to giving them indemnity with the 1976 swine flu. Uh, And they succeeded. So they tried it on a forever scale, if you will, with President Reagan a few years later. But it did. It was given to them in 1976.
1: This is sounding also familiar.
2: Yeah. Now, the the ones that the, the vaccines that are actually administered were not the ones that they tested. This is really interesting. They used a different vaccine that was developed later, but never tested in the kind of trials, you know, that we've come to expect when new injections are introduced to the public. Well, those are phase
1: one, two, and three trials in the standard workup for how you got vaccines approved or medicines.
2: Correct, yes. But in this case, in 1976, they tested one vaccine and gave another. Believe it or not, um, the administration of the untested vaccine began on October 1st, 1976. A year later, Mike Wallace did an expose on this for reasons that you will find out very soon. And he asked um, Dr. Sensor if the vaccines were tested before being administered to the public. And he said, I can't say I would have to check the records. I haven't looked at it in some time, which is horrible. Uh, Because, you know, this was his baby. He was the one that, he was the director of the CDC, and he's the one that formulated the plan to, be in charge of the vaccine rollout. That's like, Dr. Sensor, does the CDC evaluate
1: vaccines? Uh, Well, let me check my records. I'll have to get back to you on that.
2: Yeah, isn't that absurd? But there was an even bigger problem. It turns out over the nine months that elapsed between Fort Dix, the Fort Dix outbreak, and this point um, when they started the rollout, there was never a single additional case of swine flu confirmed anywhere in the world. And Dr. Sensor said there had been several cases reported, but none confirmed. So they they had the U.S. public take a vaccine uh, where there had not been a single confirmed case in the world of the disease they were supposedly protecting them against. Now, um, you know, Dr. Sabin of Salk and Sabin fame, right? Certainly. From the polio vaccine.
1: Certainly. I um, have his, I had those vaccines as a child. Yeah.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. He wrote a, an editorial in the New York Times entitled Washington and the Flu uh, because of all the shenanigans that go on with money and everything when they're able to sell a vaccine to the general public, in which he argued for a wait and see strategy by stockpiling the vaccines until it was clear they were needed, but he was ignored. In just the first month, three recipients died of heart attack shortly after being vaccinated from the same Pittsburgh clinic. Three men in one clinic died. Right after the vaccine, more and more recipient, more and more recipients con, contracted Guillain-Barré syndrome, which you know all about. And for the for the audience, it's a nervous system disorder that can cause paralysis and death. Uh, the vaccine continued on with all those people getting Guillain-Barré syndrome and people dying. Um, again, not a single additional case of swine flu was found throughout the winter. And the the Guillain-Barre cases, however, were accumulating rapidly. They got up to uh, 362 Guillain-Barre cases, with some of those dying and many paralyzed. 45 million people received the vaccine by December 15th, 1976, when they finally stopped it, because so many people were dying from it. Isn't that incredible?
1: Well, what's amazing is, that was small potatoes compared to COVID. The it, it,
2: it was small, but, but the principle is the same. And that is that they didn't give informed consent. They did not warn people that a lot of neurological, uh, complications could occur. And when sensor was asked about this, he said that we didn't know that, but then they, then Mike Wallace also interviewed another doctor on the team who said, no, that's wrong. I, I explained to Dr. Sensor and other doctors, uh, in charge of this, that that the neurological uh, complications were many, and uh, well, it's worse than is, that.
1: It was sensor's job to know that. That was sure, his job, certainly. So yeah, but he, but he assigned someone. Job. Pardon me. It was his job to know it, whether he assigned somebody to be the expert in it or not. It was his job as head of the CDC that was opining on oh, the appropriateness sure. of this massive. Program to know whether there was benefit or ra- or hazard and the quantitative values of each the relative be- benefit versus risk. It was right, the and job. they also
2: have to disclose that to the patients. You know, that's right, and inform. And, and this and is so- the whole
1: thing that that if there's no risk because the disease doesn't exist, then no vaccine, no treatment can possibly be safer than zero.
2: Correct. So, think about COVID nineteen for a second. You know, the the infection fatality rate, which I calculated on March 8th of 2020, was 0.1% for all ages now. Um, Even though the CDC, the WHO, China Medical, and some other um, authorities were saying that it was 4%. Do you remember that at the beginning of COVID?
1: I do. But the problem at that point was that we didn't have good estimates of the population frequency of infection. By, well and, and I, that I was calculate- done by by um Jay Bhattacharya and colleagues at Stanford who did the, the first studies in San Francisco area and later in Los Angeles. You're talking about
2: hormones. you're talking about the Santa Clara serology yes. study that Jay did Dr. Yes. Bhattacharya. Yeah, I'm talking about 2 months before that. That was in April. But how
1: but in order to calculate the mortality you the the deaths is straightforward to get but the denominator number of people who are yeah. infected is, is much more difficult
2: so can i explain my reasoning and how i calculated it
1: yes but we're actually getting to a commercial break point so are we, are we? okay yeah. so, so why don't we take a break um and, and then we'll, okay. we'll come right back so everybody please stay tuned
0: For 25 years, Global
2: Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally.
1: Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Reed Sheftel. So we were just discussing how to estimate the infection mortality risk in COVID when, when the pandemic first started that we knew how many deaths were occurring, but in order to know the rate, the risk, you need to know how many people have actually gotten infected. And that was harder to estimate at the beginning. So go ahead. Right. The problem,
2: the problem with the way it was done initially is. You know, the infection fatality rate is the number of people who die divided by the number of people who are infected. And you don't know the number of people infected because a lot of people don't make themselves known to the medical environment because they don't have any symptoms or they don't want to go into an emergency room because of it. Uh,
1: actually, you know, so you miss actually, them. actually, many people do have symptoms, but they're so mild that they don't think much yeah, of the same it. Same thing. They don't like need to a, go, like go to the cold. hospital for it.
2: They don't yeah. need to go to the hospital, so they're not recognized as... Members of the denominator. That's right. Okay. So the way to solve that problem is to find either a small town where nobody comes and goes or a cruise ship. And I was in Cambodia at the time, and there was a cruise ship parked in Japan, in Yokohama, Japan, called the Diamond Princess.
1: We all remember that. That's right. Okay,
2: And the reason a cruise ship is good is because you can test every single person on the boat. Um, it doesn't but matter we didn't, who goes to see the doctor or not. You just test everyone.
1: That is true. But in, in February, March of 2020, we didn't really have reliable tests for COVID quite yet.
2: You didn't need to. You just sequenced them. We had the sequence already. Okay. Say, so let me tell you how I did it. Okay. I, I took the information from the Diamond Princess, and we knew how many people died, of course, right? Yeah. And we knew how many people were infected on the boat.
1: Well, so that's the question: Did we really know how many were infected? Why yeah, I mean? we
2: did. We knew the PCR test is very inaccurate anyway, but actually it's, it's very arrogant,
1: but it's mis- but it's misleading as to what its accuracy is measuring. Uh, the when yeah, that's have...
2: correct. It's it, it measures fragments of RNA. It doesn't matter measure viable virus.
1: That's correct. Okay, uh, and, and in fact, those fragments are left over from previous infections. Correct. And, and it, those, it, hi, those high threshold positives are telling you that a, a person had COVID two to five weeks in, earlier on. and it was Actually probably, up
2: to three months. Th- maybe, those, it those, could be. Could those be. fragments of RNA can stay in the nasopharynx for three months.
1: But, but there are so, actually empirical studies that show that when people were symptomatic, meaning that they stayed home from work before they tested positive, is that actually has a peak about between two and five weeks before the test. So you're right that they could have been earlier, but when you actually look at what people's behaviors were, it shows a, a component in two to five weeks before the test. But anyway, let, let's Okay, let's, but, let's but my it.
2: point is we we've done studies on people that have had the test three months ago, and you can still get a positive PCR test from the PCR result from the fragments that are in the nasopharynx when you swab it. You can. Yeah. But anyway, let me tell you how I calculated it. So I I don't know the exact numbers right now. I could have prepared them, but I I usually show this with a slide. So it's real easy for people to understand.
1: Approximation is fine.
2: Well, there was a certain number of people on the boat and far fewer were infected, which tells you that there's a lot of immunity in place, which is a term I coined very early in the whole thing to explain that a lot of people were protected f- from COVID before it even arrived on our shores. And I can prove that also in one second, which I'll do in a minute. Okay. But there was a certain number of people on the boat that got it. Okay. That was the infected number. Cause you tested every single person on the boat. Okay. And, and a certain number of people who died and there were eight people who died. Okay. Yes. Now there were a few more people that died that were that died like back in Australia a couple months later, but I did not count those because the average number of days between infection and dying of those people who died is only 18 days.
1: That's right. Between two and three weeks. That's right.
2: Yeah. So, so you cannot count someone who died two months later, they died of something else. Remember there's a lot of elderly people on a cruise ship, right? And they can die of anything at any time.
1: And they tend to be obese as well. So,
2: right. But anyway, so I knew the number who had died, and I knew the number who were infected. And so when I did the quotient, it came out to be about 0.3-something percent. And so you have to make an adjustment, though, because the number of people that are on a cruise ship, and I knew the average age on the cruise ship, that was well-known to me, are much older than the general population.
1: That's right. So you have to adjust. So they're going to they're the gonna
2: die more often than regular age people are, the average age, right? Correct, and I knew the average age of people in the United States. You can look that up on Google.
1: Well, right depends on when the average thing. age That's of right.
2: people on the cruise ship was sixty nine, and the average age of people on the boat, I think, was forty. I mean, on the I'm sorry, the average age of people on the cruise ship, I think, was sixty nine years, and the average age of people in the United States is forty seven. I think. Yeah. But anyway, I I looked at that and figured out. How much I had to adjust the infection fatality rate because of that. And I did so with standard deviations and a little bit of mathematical stuff that you would understand and, and I certainly do. But I can't explain it without writing. You don't, it out. You don't
1: need to. You could, it's, you can either but do I it by regression or by direct standardization. Either yeah, way,
2: but exactly. But you can see why I had to lower the true lower the number that I got to get a more accurate infection fatality rate, because the people on the cruise ship were so old. Correct. Didn't he? Okay. I made a few other assumptions, but very sound assumptions like that one. And I came up with 0.1%. Okay.
1: And that's in the known ballpark uh, what we know now. So oh, that, that's that's that's, that's right on it.
2: That's right on it. I was I was fortunate to be so close to exactly right.
1: Yeah.
2: Because two weeks later, Dr. Ianides did the same thing from the same data and got 0.12%. Yep. Yeah. Okay? Now, this was all in March. I did mine on March 8th, Dr. Ioannidis on March 17th. And Dr. Levitt, the, the chemistry chemist at um, Stanford, who actually did physics as a degree, but got the Nobel Prize in chemistry, also came up with a number like that, only a little bit higher than do- myself and Dr. Ioannidis. Okay? Right. Now, so, we, so we knew this. Dr. I mean- Bhattacharya did his survey in Santa Clara, California with Dr. Ben David in April where they took samplings of blood and looked for antibodies. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And they came up with a slightly higher number, but as I pointed out to Dr. Bhattacharya in our conversations together, of which there were 24 hours worth, <laughs> he did not take into consideration the fact that after three months, you, you normally don't even detect antibodies in the blood. Well, you can, but it, it <laughs> goes down. Correct. So you, you would miss some of the people who were infected. Yes. So he his number's too high.
1: It's possible. It's a little too high. But but anyway, it's a
2: little too high. And that's his came out to be like 0.3%. But it was because he missed the people that three months earlier had been infected with COVID, in my opinion. And I told him that. And he said, Oh God, you're right. Yeah. So anyway, um, at first everybody thought I was crazy. Of course, my my um, work got pulled off of the Internet. And um, it wasn't until September of 2020 where the CDC finally agreed with me.
1: Right. And they finally you, admitted I was right. And you didn't get your Twitter account back either.
2: <laughs> and, well, I, I did it on Facebook. They took um, it down. Um, but anyway, that was the correct derivation of the infection fatality rate. And the way to do it is to find a small population so you can test everyone. That's closed. So people can't come and go. Yeah. You see?
1: Yes. Uh, so now, I, that's accurate.
2: At, it's, that's right on the money. And, yeah.
1: and replicated. You know, I mean. The oh, found, yeah, sure. The, the other studies have found similar numbers. Same very close yeah. ballpark is
2: replicated. As soon as Dr. Bhattacharya and Dr. Ben David did it in Santa Clara, and then, like you said, down in Los Angeles, uh, that was practical evidence from a study that confirmed my theoretical calculations.
1: Well, your theoretical is actually your empirical calculation. I think
2: It's empirical, but it was it required some um, assumptions which well, were
1: right on. Well, the, assu- the main assumption is that you're generalizing from the people and circumstance and environment of the ship, to the general population as a whole, I think that's a valid assumption.
2: Yeah, and the reason I think it's I think it's totally valid is because they, they even knew who patient zero was. He was a guy from Hong Kong who got off the boat really quickly, but he had infected a bunch of people before that, so it spread all over the boat. Yes. Um, now there's only one caveat to it, but I'll I'll, I'll leave that alone for now because uh, um, we have other more important stuff to talk about. Um, if you'd like to. Sure. Okay. Um, So anyway, this, this issue with um, prosecuting people who lied to us is, is really a problem. I mean, we need to do this, not, not out of revenge or anything like that, but because we can't a- afford to let this happen anymore. Do you agree with that?
1: I think that our justice system needs to carry out investigation and prosecution of people implicated in manipulation of the science evidence and the decision-making that led to the massive harms that occurred from the pandemic that were not caused by the the infection itself. That individuals who abetted needless deaths from the pandemic. So for example, the people who said that um, there's no evidence for hydroxychloroquine and even if there were evidence, it won't be good enough until you do large-scale randomized controlled trials. That That is a misrepresentation because only what's needed is safety and minor evidence in a pandemic, not yeah. proof and so on. So this, these are the ringleaders who did this in callous disregard for human life, the human lives lost. This was abetting those deaths for no benefit other than what one conjectures, which is to stir up fear, so that people would drown, take drown in, in you know, in, in desire to to get the vaccines as soon as they could, because they were afraid, because they had all of, of this experience telling them they were going to die from this unless they got vaccinated, and so they abetted those deaths for a purpose, which is to sell the vaccines. This was dis- despicable behavior of people who were in charge and needs to be fully investigated and prosecuted.
2: Okay, can can I say something about my natural history with the with the issue of um, hydroxychloroquine, okay? I remember when people on television and it was CNN I was watching because the only thing I could get in Cambodia where I was working was CNN. I couldn't get any other channels. So I was watching all of these liberal doctors I called them the MDTV mafia. (laughs) And um, I was watching them on TV every day saying that all these six studies that had been done on hydroxychloroquine proved that it didn't work. And one of them one day said that it's very dangerous, too. And I remembered from medical school that hydroxychloroquine was used as a prophylactic for malaria, and they don't make things prophylactics when they're dangerous because people haven't even gotten the disease yet. You know, you don't give something that can kill someone and use it as a prophylactic. So let me tell you what happened. Yeah, go ahead. So I looked into those six studies that they kept quoting because I knew they were up to no good when they said that. I looked into those studies and those studies were designed to fail. Have you ever looked at at the doses they were giving and yes, uh, some of know, them... the, the the patient population they were giving them to? They weren't giving them to the correct patient population either. Well, they were giving them to people who the... were already in the hospital.
1: That's right. This is part of the whole pandemic um, m- mismanagement that we were asserting that hydroxychloroquine should be used in the first starting in the first four or five days of outpatient treatment. And that's where it was effective. We have we have essentially proof. There's now eleven studies. We know overwhelmingly how much it saved people from dying um, in these regimens, and uh, not to mention hundreds of thousands of people in, that doctors had treated, and you know, with with nary any deaths. So we knew the effectiveness sure. of this drug.
2: And meanwhile, and the, saf- the safety was well known. The people safety People take was known hydroxychloroquine from... for, for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, and they take it for 30 years every day. So we knew it was safe as hell.
1: Yes, and those in uh, tens of billions of doses by hundreds of millions of people for the last 65 plus years. That's right. We knew it was safe. That was what we needed to know in order to roll this out in the pandemic. That's right. why- because but there's no opportunity cost because there's no correct. other medications because people were being sent home saying, take nothing, Tylenol. Okay. Right. So me. there was no downside to using a safe medicine, no matter what its
2: level of evidence for efficacy is. And yes, we but, in, your, but in, this case, be done. in this case, we, we knew they were safe. We knew it was safe, right? And they had purposefully designed these studies to fail. That That really bothers me. They they did not give the correct dosage. They gave it to people who are already in the hospital. And one of the effects of hydroxychloroquine, there's about 12 ways that it works. One of them is to inhibit the release of cytokines from T helper cells. And when you're already in the hospital with symptoms that put you in the hospital, the T helper cells have already released the cytokines.
1: Well, so this it doesn't this is help another, to block it. That's right. But this is another interesting thing that hydroxychloroquine um modulates the immune response to the the viruses, which if anything, may actually prolong duration of symptoms. And it's still keeping you out of the hospital and still keeping you from dying. But if if your study is looking at duration of symptoms or duration of of viral positivity in the nose, it's gonna show that it doesn't work. And the whole point is that's a completely irrelevant outcome from looking at what's important that needs to be managed in the pandemic. And this is part of the misrepresentations of the drug. That's right. Yeah,
2: so that, that was my first introduction that people were really up to no good with this thing. I thought maybe that the reason they got 4% for the infection fatality rate was because they were just dumb, you know, not very mathematical. But then something really, really strange happened on March 20th. They At first, they tried to fudge the infection fatality rate to scare everyone by fiddling with the denominator, right? They weren't counting everybody. right? But on March 20th, have you seen that that directive for guidelines in causing and calling deaths due to COVID? Have you ever seen that?
1: Was that the one where deaths with COVID were cre-
2: relabeled as deaths from COVID? It, well, it, it, they didn't come out and say it that way, but someone did a study in August. Had they used the guidelines that were in place for 17 years before they changed them there would have been 9000 um deaths by august 9th or something instead of 161000 which is what they were quoting because they changed the guidelines on march 20th
1: oh i know so, what you're i know what you're saying those are the yeah. ones where the number of comorbidities that people had multiple comorbidities, causes of death on their death certificates, that COVID was one of multiples.
2: No, 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 it's, it's different than that. It, it had to do with getting a positive PCR test within a certain number of days of death. Okay. From any cause. This okay. is why people that were getting um, motorcycle accidents and dying, if they had a positive PCR test, they were counted um, well, as right. A, so as that's a that's COVID with,
1: death. That's deaths it's, with COVID, not deaths from COVID. That's
2: correct. But that's but the right. point is they were counting it as a COVID death. Yeah. Which, which really inflated the numbers terribly, you know, by 16 times. Yeah. And I can now prove with beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I hope we get a chance to do this sometime when we have visuals, because I'd love the audience to see this. I can prove that the total number of deaths in the United States over two. Th- over 2020, 2021, and 2022 is only 60,000 people, the same as three mild flu seasons. Yes. This thing was the biggest nothing burger to ever hit the airwaves.
1: Well, so again, I would say that I'm not willing to go that far, but let's- Uh, let's, I can prove it. Hang on a sec. We're at a break time, so let's take a break and we'll be right back.
2: for the soul of humanity. Cofix Rx Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix Rx.
1: Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Reed Sheftel. So we were just discussing about um, deaths from COVID versus deaths with COVID. Now, I think that you're actually getting to a much deeper problem, which is determining cause of death when people have multiple contributing conditions. Death certificates describe, they doctors are supposed to report the contributing conditions to the death. And usually death is a sequence of events, that starts with the first serious uh impact on viability and culminates in the last organ failure that that precipitates what the the end result now which one along that chain is considered the de- the cause of death usually is the first one but there could be an underlying cause of which the first one is only kind of a symptom so the whole system of cause calling cause of death is basically in my mind iffy and so one is left with the problem of where does COVID fit into this when COVID is making survivability from end stage heart disease, for example, more difficult? Is is COVID you know the last straw that that broke the camel's back? But the camel's back was already dying from from heart disease.
2: Can, can How I, does COVID I'm play into that? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, doctor. I'm That's all right. I just wanted to throw in something uh, which is very germane to this, and that is, do you happen to know who Dr. Ezeke is? No. She is a lady who is the public health director for the state of Illinois, and I have a video of her doing a press conference clearing up what it means to be called a death by COVID. She said even when there's a clear alternative cause but they had a a positive COVID test. It was called a COVID death. In other words, and she gave the example, if someone is in hospice and they've been dying of cancer and they have three days to live and they get a positive PCR test, we called it a COVID death. Uh-huh. Now, doesn't that answer your question?
1: Well, it answers my question as to which school of public health that person went to and that school should be unaccredited. They obviously didn't teach her proper public health.
2: Well, have you, I mean, you're you're from Yale, which is a fabulous place ordinarily. Although I'll tell you, they missed COVID so bad it was unbelievable. I have a um a poster that they put out where every single statement on it is wrong. Have you seen that poster? I've seen lots, almost everything that's come out of Yale
1: by my colleagues and by our official COVID personnel, and I disagreed with almost all of it.
2: Yeah, I I was getting ready to say, you must have had a lot of friction there in the last few years.
1: Well, you know, Yale runs itself, and I do what I think is right, and we have academic freedom, and my colleagues are free to say whatever they think in their wisdom is right, and I say what I think from my research is right. And I let readers and listeners judge science as best they can from who is justified with which research, you know, what they say.
2: And that's what well, really, it should be. I'm really glad to hear that. It takes a lot of guts to do that. Um, but I hope you have uh, tenure. <laughs> I'm sure well, you I, do. I'm emeritus. I, you know, I, I, oh. I retired a year ago. Okay. That was planned. Uh, my point is... Um, You know, it's in a lot of things that you've said correctly have been in direct contradiction to Yale's position on all this, and they've been wrong. And, you know, MIT MIT was wrong on all of it too. Yeah, all of all the schools have been wrong. Johns Hopkins had the the tally of the number of people who died and the new cases and all that way exaggerated the whole time. So the
1: real question
2: is think
1: about this. Were all these people getting so much wrong because either A, they were afraid to say things that disagreed with the popular messaging, B, they were being threatened in some way by either pharma funders or the government, or C, was the security apparatus of the country telling them they could not be true because it would do things like increase vaccine hesitancy or things like that that well, was a bigger goal
2: i i've thought about this a lot and i i think it really comes down to them worrying about losing their funding for a lot of their research because stanford was wrong on everything johns hopkins was wrong yale was wrong mit who you know you would expect to step forward and and explain why lockdowns wouldn't work or could not work uh, endorsed them so let me tell you, it was very upsetting for me because I thought these things through from first principles. And I know you know what I'm talking about. And I proved all these things from first principles before the data came out. And I was never wrong. Well, it was obvious that lockdowns will only
1: prolong the, the you know, the eventual whatever it's going to happen is going to happen anyway. Uh, but, but
2: lockdown, wait a minute now, lockdowns were the exact Opposite of what should have been done.
1: That's correct. That they don't. There's no. They made things
2: worse, not better. They Uh, made the virus spread faster, not slower.
1: They so. And I can prove all of it. The lockdown trade-off is that the virus spreads to the household members more, and in theory, spreads to people in social communities, work, and school communities less. Now. It really wasn't enough. It was not a hermetic right. sealed lockdown to do that in the external part. And it did uh, right. promote spread within households and especially in nursing homes where the great majority of deaths occurred during the first year.
2: That's what I, that goes with my proof. And I proved it from a physics point of view. Remember, well, this virus is 100 nanometers in diameter. Yeah, it's so fine. small. You can't see it. It's truly invisible. It's not even in the visible spectrum. Well, it's too it goes small. from 400 nanometers to 700.
1: Uh, yes, but it, it's obviously you need an electron microscope to. That's right. It, so you've
2: it. never seen a picture of the virus taken with a light microscope.
1: No, you can't. The, the, you can't see the, it. It's the invisible. wavelength of light is, is bigger than, than the virus itself.
2: That's what I'm saying, and that's that, that is very germane to the whole argument about lockdowns. Plus, here's the here's the real issue with lockdowns. You're taking people and putting in, them into boxes, houses, where the air is stagnant. And stagnant air will accumulate virus.
1: Well, so okay? that's why they infect everybody in the household. That's right. That's yes, right.
2: because you're, you're putting everybody into a house where the air is stagnant. Now, if someone in the house is infected, all Katie, bar the door. If you don't have immunity in place, you're going to get infected in the house if someone else in the house has it, because the Uh, air is stagnant.
1: uh, I'm well aware of that. Uh, Okay. A year ago, our son came home from one of his clinical rotations and said a a person had been coughing even though she was masked and had a face shield. Two days later, he had it tested positive. Two days after that, I got it, was symptomatic. Two days after that, my wife was symptomatic. That is right.
2: And the analogy I always make, I do this with a beautiful description and drawing, of course, but the analogy I always make is if you've got a bunch of runners running a marathon on a regular 400-meter track, you know, Mm -hmm. and you make 100 meters of it, four-inch deep sand, right? 100 meters is made to have four-inch deep sand on it. After about 20 laps, there's way more people in the sand than there are in any other 100-meter section of the track. Well, right, because they're sta- they, they get stagnated in the sand. They can't well, they move down. It as
1: quickly. They, they spend more time in the sand than, than that's what can. I'm
2: saying. And so the virus that's moving through the environment gets stuck in these houses everywhere because the air's moving slowly in the houses. It's stagnant. Yeah, well, it's sealed from the
1: outside for many cases. Although our yeah. recommendations it's, were to keep the windows open, but that doesn't go very far.
2: It's still it's still relatively stagnant compared to the outdoors. What they needed to do is tell everyone to go outdoors just the opposite of what they told them to do. Yeah. Okay. So I I prove that. Now, um and you know, locking up basketball courts and and putting wooden boards across basketball rims and not letting people go to the beach and and arresting surfers, I mean, everything they did was the exact opposite of what they should have done. So this is an important point that
1: in 2006 Tom Inglesby Uh, Inglesby and Don Henderson wrote a definitive review paper on pandemic management of influenza vaccines. And everything that they said in there, no lockdowns, don't stop airplane flights from from foreign countries, social distancing doesn't work, uh, masks are useless. They they said the whole thing, everything they said was the, the whole history of public health for respiratory viruses by established credible figures in the field. And as soon as the pandemic hit, the, the security state in the United States came in, took control of pandemic management, threw all of that out, and did the opposites.
2: Okay. So now, I don't know where, where all those um, experts in the field were, because when I did all these calculations and figured all this out in March of 2020, I wrote when President Trump announced on the 17th that he was going to put us into lockdowns. Remember two weeks to flatten the curve and all that oh, stuff? Yes. All right. On the very next day, I wrote a letter to um, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Anderson Cooper, Chris Cuomo, and Eric Trump. I wrote emails to them. Now, I'm not that, I was in Cambodia, so that's all I could do. And I told them, not only will lockdowns not work, but they will cause death and destruction on a biblical scale. That's what I wrote to these guys. Please give me five minutes in your office. You don't need to put me on TV. Just let me explain it to you, and I'll explain why. And I never heard back from any of them.
1: No, I know, you know, because for every one of your voices, they had hundreds of voices saying, do the right thing, do the right thing. This is what you should do, et cetera. All this government propaganda and control of the messaging.
2: Well, they had Deborah Burks and um, I hate to say Matthew Pottinger pushing for these things when there was absolutely no evidence or justification for it.
1: Uh, no, the evidence was that they would be harmful. That more people, would There die was no, there the was life.
2: no evidence for doing it. Is what I'm saying. But see, the point is, it
1: wasn't. They were proclaiming this was: Are you care? Do you care about money, or do you care about saving lives? And that was baloney because the lockdowns caused more deaths than they would than they potentially would have saved.
2: They the lockdowns die versus lives. Absolutely, and I'll tell you, I, I can't begin to tell you how many people wrote to me and messaged me on Facebook that said, you're comparing money to people's lives. I said, no, 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 I'm comparing lives to lives. You're not gonna believe how many people die because of this. When you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. So you don't have any income. So a woman who feels a breast lump after she's lost her job and her health insurance has the choice to put her $100 into food for her children or to go to a doctor, she's gonna buy the food for her children. And that's why a lot of these ladies are dying of breast cancer right now.
1: Yes, uh, there are all sorts of reasons. Don't, don't forget mental health, depression, suicide. So
2: many, many, many things. But I'm just making a, one concrete example that explains it to people.
1: And and, it, and the, the, the problem isn't that this is theoretical. The problem is that this happened, and it happened in large numbers right? and was predictable. And we all predicted
2: and, it. Well you you and I may have but I'll tell you I when I was I felt like the loneliest person on earth when I was writing all these essays and explaining Oh, well we everything.
1: all felt that because that's part of the propaganda. Oh, you're the only person who
2: thinks that. You couldn't possibly be right. That's what every one of us was told. And everybody said, "Why should we believe you instead of the CDC?" And I said, "Because the CDC has been wrong on everything and I've been right on everything." Yep. And I know you've experienced the same thing. Didn't wasn't it frustrating?
1: well, you know, I can, as an epidemiologist, I can take apart the CDC studies published in their MMWR non-peer-reviewed journals and show why they violate principles of epidemiology and how their vaccine efficacy studies, for example, grossly overestimate the the benefits of the vaccines because they're using the wrong analytic methods for the way they design the studies. And, yeah, you know, and- You know, they get dozens of authors to sign these things, people who have professional degrees who should know about the methods of public health, and they all fail. I want to know what schools of public health those people went to, because those schools should fail. Those people failed in their knowledge of public health.
2: Well, Dr. Risch, let me just say this. A lot of the guys that you've seen on TV, such as Dr. Ja, who's been wrong about everything and was pushing the vaccines in six-month-olds, went to Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Well, there you are. Okay, there's. A doesn't that upset family. you that Harvard, one of our best institutions, is pumping out people that were wrong on everything? Well, public health-wise, first wise? of all, they
1: don't understand epidemiology, or and or they're using epidemiology as a tool to further some special interest, either because they're they're scared or because they see a profit motive. You know, if you look at Dr. Wolensky in her public statements. She looks like she's afraid. There, there's a, a a big perspiration nervousness quotient, I would say, in how I see her performing in her public interviews. Oh, that absolutely. Tells me, that tells me that that it's not just stage fright, that that she's got some reason why she has to say what she has to say under some kind of threat to her job, to her perception of the, the, the world's collapse, or some other reason that that she was propagandized to fear in order well, to
2: say what she said no question about that but also i mean let's face it dr walensky what well first of all she was the head of infectious disease at, at at mass general and it's hard to be the head of anything at mass general you know you got to be a pretty good doctor i would think and political too of course yes and i'll tell you i was not impressed with dr walensky well none she, of us were. She, was, she was wrong on so many things for example on January 15th, one month and one day after the vi- vaccines were released, I I proved that the vaccines were not blocking transmission. Now, Dr. Bhattacharya said, no way, that's way too early. Nobody could have proved it that, that quickly. But I explained to him how I did it. And of course, I used calculus to do it. <laughs> and nobody else was using calculus. But the general medical community did finally catch on in early April, a couple months later.
1: Well, that's good enough. Okay,
2: but my point is, Dr. Walensky and Dr. Fauci, in June and July, three, four months after April, when the general medical community knew that these things weren't working at all to block transmission, were still saying on television, and I've got videos of all of it, saying that if you get the vaccine, you can't pass it on to someone else. Do you remember those videos?
1: Oh, they're vivid in everybody's, you know, memory. Uh, you now, know, doesn't a that dead make your
2: blood and, boil? And here's yeah. why. If somebody gets the vaccine and they believe Dr. Fauci or Dr. Walensky, they'll take chances on being next to sick people that they wouldn't have taken otherwise. And some of those people died because of it.
1: Yeah, that happened. But, but uh, you know, the, the empirical evidence is that in the first two weeks after vaccination, you have a, a somewhere of a, a 50 to 100% increased risk of getting infected before the vaccine kicks in. That's an adverse event. So in studies that have looked at the safety, they don't say that, that the vaccine is actually make, gives the person the vaccinated status until two weeks after the dose. That is throwing out all of the deaths that occur within four or right. five days after vaccination. That's I mean, one of the biggest scams of the whole thing. misrepresentation. It's all part of the propaganda. We've been through a deluge of propaganda on every last aspect of the pandemic, and it's you know, I, I'm really afraid that I'm ashamed of my whole discipline of public health and epidemiology, and not just that people who knew better, didn't stand up because they were afraid, but because so many people complied as oh, you know, apparatchiks in this completely failed uh, discipline
2: of uh, uh, knowledge of public health. I mean, uh, I mean Dr. Doctor Rish, I'm a surgeon. I'm not involved in public health at all. And imagine what I think about it. <laughs> I mean, come on, a surgeon? You know, and I, I, I always tell people, how could these people not know this when I figured it out with a dull number two pencil and half a sheet of notebook paper in Phnom Penh, Cambodia?
1: Well, you we can't get
2: all these data scientists at the CDC to figure any of this stuff out?
1: They didn't want to figure it out. You had a, have an inquiring mind uh, that asks questions like I do and, and uh, my colleagues that we are asking the same question with how do you make sense of this? that this isn't making sense and we need to figure out what does make sense and how to understand everything and take it all apart and figure it all out. That's been the way you think about the world. That's how I think about the world. And and that is not how governments think about the world. And it's not how many of our colleagues have thought about the world during the pandemic. And, and unfortunately, that's where we've been for the last three and a half years. And I don't see until we can change the way we educate people in PhD programs and medical school uh, and so on, then we're going to get anywhere in people actually thinking outside the box, thinking things that they weren't told to think, having the, the, the freedom to open their mind to asking questions and figuring out what makes sense of them to study. And actually with that, we've run out of time. Oh, darn. These hours run very quickly. So... Uh, We'll have to have another discussion. So I hope our our listeners have uh, enjoyed our discussion. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. So Reid, thank you for some really great conversation. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And please come back again next week.